Thank you, Asher, for uh, reading the word and uh, thank you for the prayers. Good morning, church. If anti-doping regulations had been strictly enforced, Calvin Smith, a gifted American sprinter uh, with a distinctive upright style, would have left the 1988 Seoul Games as the Olympic 100 meters champion and world record holder. On the day that changed the face of the Olympics and his sports forever, Smith finished fourth behind Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis, and Linford Christie. Today, he is the only man among the first five finishers in Seoul untouched by a drug scandal. Quote, I should have been the gold medalist, unquote. Smith has said of race that has been variously described as the dirtiest and most corrupt in history. Throughout the last five or ten years of my career, he continues, I knew I was being denied the chance to show that I was the best clean runner, he told the journalists. I knew I was competing against the athletes who were on drugs. Sometimes choices are hard, but those choices would mean a lot for those who have great character. Sometimes for some, they would cut corners to win the race, but for Smith, it was his character that was shown through. We will be going through uh, the book of Exodus chapter 32 in its entirety as time allows. Uh, this chapter appears to be uh, kind of an interlude or something that is out of sync with the chronology uh, or the flow of the book. Scholars are of the opinion that this may be because of what had happened and to highlight uh, the stubborn nature of uh, the people of Israel as we have just read and heard. Um, so that may be the reason. So I will divide this into the first six verses, the episode uh, with Aaron, uh, the first six verses. Then we will see verses 7 through 14, uh, Moses' interaction with the Lord. And then uh, 15 through 20, he comes down and deals with the people. Verses 21 following uh, two through 24, he deals with Aaron. He turns to Aaron that, why did you do this? 25 through 29, uh, that would be an altar call. A great call and the Levite to respond. And verses 30 through 34 is his continuing pleading on behalf of the people. And verse 35 is the inclusio. So the first six verses, what we see is a strange request. Uh, Make us gods. Uh, this is what we read. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down uh, from the mountain, people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has uh, become of him. Strange request indeed. They say, make us gods. Why did they ask for gods to go before them? Well, they could have asked Aaron to lead them, couldn't they? Because he was one of the leaders uh, who was with Moses. Instead, they asked Aaron to make us gods to go before them. We do not know the exact reasons why, but it may be adduced from the uh, few references to Moses as God in the earliest chapters. For example, in, in Exodus 4.16, uh, this is what we read, quote, he will speak for you to the people and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were his God. This was a statement to Aaron. And then in Exodus 7.1, 
uh, again, the Lord repeats. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you go to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. We do not know if these were the reasons why the people had asked Aaron to make a God to go before them instead of asking him to lead them or to appoint another leader. Or it could have been also because of the many miracles that Moses had performed, which they knew that God alone could do. No human being, no ordinary human uh, being could do the miracles that God, uh, that uh, Moses was able to perform on behalf of God and on behalf of his people. Aaron unwittingly walks into the trap. He should have known better. Uh, in fact, if you read uh, in Exodus 19.24, uh, God had asked Moses to bring Aaron up with him to the mountain. So Aaron knew exactly what was going on. He knew who Moses was with and why he was there up in the mountain with God, what was going on. But for uh, some inexplicable reason, he falls into this trap, the request, the strange request of the people. They are saying, make us God to go before us. Uh, this was his time to make a difference. Instead, Aaron caves into peer pressure. The narrative presents Aaron's uh, response as very casual, uh, without even an attempt on his part to dissuade the people, uh, to try to persuade them from not continuing, not going through with their request. Uh, we don't see anything instead. This is what we read in verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take of the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Interesting. Even Apparently, even sons had earrings. Well, uh, different times. Uh, verse uh, 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Uh, they left Egypt with quite a bit of possession, right? If you uh, know the story and how the people had left we know that they had gone out to the neighbors and asked them uh, for uh, gold and for other things. Of course, they said, we are just going for a three days journey into the wilderness to worship our God. Perhaps it was because they knew that Egyptians cared a lot about presenting themselves best before their God. We do not know exactly the reasons. Of course, later on, we know that it was kind of their wages. Uh, but as far as the Egyptians were concerned, they had no clue why the Israelites were asking for gold uh, or their jewelry. Uh, but now we know what that is going to be used for. Uh, in verse 4, and he received the gold. This is Aaron. Uh, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it uh, with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, as soon as the people saw what had come about, uh, the product, the final product, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This was their retort. Um, interesting, uh, the word, the Hebrew word that's used here, uh, that uh, Aaron had fashioned a golden calf, is the same word we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God is fashioning man out of the dust of the earth. Interesting that uh, there was a time God made man in his own image and likeness. Now, when it was man's turn, Aaron's turn, he is making a God after his own heart, after his own idea. As soon as the people saw, they were really excited. They attribute their redemption to uh, this golden calf, redemption from Egypt. What do they say? These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you 
out of the land of Egypt. And we, we wonder, uh, you know, the second question here, the first question was, make us gods to go before us. We would wonder, like, what a strange request. Uh, the second thing, why a golden calf? Couldn't have Aaron chosen anything else? Uh, it may be because the bull god in Egypt, uh, it was called uh, by different name, Hap, Hep, or Happy, like maybe nicknames in India for kids, uh, or Apis in Greek. Uh, the bull god was very well known and was worshipped uh, from about the first dynasty of the pharaohs from the third millennia. Uh, there were different cults, cultic centers, Memphis, uh, Hermophilus, uh, and him, uh, no, other places. Uh, this is uh, a quote. Uh, from the great Cairo hymn about uh, uh, this bull god, Lord of truth, father of the gods, and made man and animals, and is the Lord of what exists, who created the tree of life. Uh, in short, bull god was uh, one of the most important gods in Egypt. The people of Israel were so accustomed to seeing these gods around, and if you knew anything about uh, the Egyptian ways, uh, their religion, uh, what you will understand is this, that this idea of the bull god and other gods were always inscribed everywhere. There are coffin texts, people were buried, uh, their coffins were decorated very elaborately uh, with all of this myth, uh, which is known as cosmogeny, the birth of the world, and how gods were involved. And so bull god was something that they were very familiar with. And that is uh, Aaron's default position. Uh, the action of Aaron and the reaction of the people tell us that they were very familiar with this God and very comfortable. The people of Israel were in Egypt over 400 years. Uh, several generations of being there means that they were Egyptians for all intents and purposes. You ask those children who are born and raised in the US, right? Second, third generation. Before you know, they are called like the Indian generation or called coconut generation because uh, they are uh, brown outside with white inside. I would not tell you a conversation I had with one of my sons. Uh, I would tell you what it is, but not name. Uh, I was driving them to school or picking them up back from school one day. For whatever reason, he said, uh, you know, dad, because of these things, you know, we white people can't do this. And I said, what did you say? We white people? Yeah, we are white, you are brown. I said, let's look at the mirror. Well, that was the end of the debate, uh, right? These people were in Egypt for so long. And it was very difficult for them to change. When push comes to shove, people will often go back to what they are familiar with, what they are brought up with. According to behavioral psychologists, character formation happens in the formative years, which is about the first 15 years of one's life. Their upbringing, the particular character, traits that they would show, all of them are tied to uh, these formative years and what they have done. So for whatever obvious, obvious reasons, it was very difficult for the people of Israel to think anything other than Egyptian whenever uh, they face difficult situations. So it is said that it was easier to get them out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the people. Every so often, whenever the people did not like what had happened to them, they would want to go back to Egypt. For example, Numbers 11.5, this is the episode that they want, they craved for meat 
they were eating mana and it was so despicable to them. They said, you know what? We despise it. There's nothing good in it. Of course, don't forget that this was a miracle, a daily miracle, right? Every morning they see God's hand at work. They were seeing the very visible presence of God. As they come out of the tent, if they looked around the very presence of God in the pillar of fire or pillar of cloud, despite that, of course, they would rebel against God. That time they would think so wonderfully about Egypt. They think about the, uh, the uh, melons, the cucumbers, the onions, the great stuff they ate in Egypt. Or in Numbers 14.3, uh, this is the reporting of the, 10, uh, the 12 spies. 10 of them bring bad news and the two of them bring good news. This is what the people say in Numbers 14.3 and 4. Why has the Lord brought us into this land only to be killed by the sword? That our wives and our children should become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Not only that they uh, think about nostalgic, nostalgically about Egypt. Look at verse 14. So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Egypt was part and parcel of who these people were. Even though they were redeemed people, it was so hard for them to leave Egypt behind. I think this is true of us as well as Christians, isn't it? We need to really take a good stock of what informs us, what forms our behavior. If you're not brought upon a good biblical, sound biblical foundation, uh, we will more likely to fall back on what we are familiar with. Watch out for the Egyptians in us. That is the old man with all its sinful practices. The old self will read its ugly head uh, at the opportune moment. It will. And the life of the people of Israel teaches us that Egypt was just a heartbeat away. When we recoil uh, on the face of difficulties, what is our default posture? What do we resort to? What do we fall back on? If, he, if I take a stock of that, uh, sometimes it really uh, you know, frightens me because the old man is present, uh, ever so present in, in those circumstances. When Aaron saw this verse 5, uh, he built an altar before it and made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. When Aaron saw what? Aaron saw that the people were very pleased with his work because in verse 4, we see that he took some graving tools. He brought out his artistic skills. Uh, probably he was just waiting for this opportunity to exhibit his skill. And here was the opportunity for him. Uh, in verse 4, of course, he carves this image uh, with precision, with utmost care. And then he saw that the people were too excited because as soon as they saw the a golden calf, what did they say? Oh, Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. They could not give glory to Yahweh. They could not even you know, bring themselves up to think that it was the living God, the God of Israel, who brought them out of Egypt. Instead, uh, they would go back to the Egyptian God. Aaron finds himself in a tight sport. He has let the people go wild. He caved into their request completely. Instead of correcting their behavior, 
he gives a spiritual twist to it. What does he say? Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Before whom are they going to celebrate this feast? Before the golden calf. Aaron knew that, you know, he had lost control of the people. Uh, he lost the plot. So he decided, you know what? Let me give a spiritual twist. I wonder how often I'm like Aaron, right? I came in into uh, peer pressure. And there are times I think I have resorted to a spiritual language, uh, giving a spiritual twist uh, to what is abominable and aberrant as far as God was concerned. And in fact, in verse 8, the Lord will tell Moses, this is precisely what the people did. He would say they have quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. These are your gods of Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Aaron not only gave them what they requested, but allowed them to bring in strange worship, bring strange worship into the Israelite camp. Uh, totally uncalled for. This was his time to uh, become a leader. Uh, he was called upon. These, these were crucial times as far as the nation Israel was concerned. This was his time to stand up for God, but he caved into pressure. Sometimes when I look at my own Christian life, you know, I'm between these two extremes, between Aaron and the other character we will find in this book, uh, in this chapter, Moses. Sometimes I think I'm like Aaron, caving into peer pressure, wanting to please people. Whether it is with my language, uh, with my demeanor or whatnot, there may be times I have to make a stand, uh, make a, uh, take a stand for God, uh, make it my point to honor God. But every so often, I came in like Aaron. So I can really identify myself with Aaron here. I don't know about you, uh, but Christian life is sometimes between these two poles. Uh, sometimes we are like Aaron and then Sometimes we would be like Moses, which we will see a little later. So the next day morning in verse 6, all the people got up. Uh, they put on their festive clothing and they were dancing and they had a great party. They worshipped this golden image. And God is so upset. We read that in verses 7 through 14, the text that Asher had read for us. Uh, here we will find a strong resolve. Uh, on the part of Moses, and he would say in verse uh, 34, that brought my name out if you would not forgive these people. If you are going to destroy these people, Lord, take me out first. Take my life away. So this is now the conversation, the second piece that we are seeing, the second part of the narrative, the conversation that God is having with Moses and vice versa. Uh, Moses is also going to respond to God. Verse 7 following. A strong resolve. Why? First we saw a strange request. Now we see a strong resolve. Uh, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for you people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Interesting statement. God tells Moses that these were Moses' people whom Moses brought out from the land of Egypt. Sounds quite strange, doesn't it? But as far as God was concerned, these people are Moses' people because he is their leader. 
He represents them. Watch out more for Moses' language in verse 11. Okay, we'll come to it. Both Moses and Aaron are God's representatives before the people. They are to conduct themselves a certain way because there is so much at risk, at stake. However, we see that Aaron does not represent God well. Not only did he not represent God well to the people, but he was not willing to own up his mistake. When he was given an opportunity, we will see that in verses 21 to 24. If you turn there in verse 24, uh, Moses would ask Aaron this question. What did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? 22, verse 22, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are not evil. They are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 24. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I just threw it into the fire. Voila, here comes out the golden calf. He conveniently omits his uh, crafting skills, right? He conveniently avoids some details. He says, look, hey, please don't hold me accountable. You know, I was pushed to the corner. You know, when you are really cornered, you know, you just don't know uh, what you would do, right? These people really surprised me. I was not going to do anything. But ultimately, I said, you know what? Whoever has gold, yeah, if you have something, bring it to me. I didn't know what to do with it. So I thought, you know, here's gold. Ooh, I don't want to do anything with it. I threw it, landed in the fire. Voila, there comes the golden calf. He's given an opportunity to own up. This was his time to own up. But he is not going to do that. Sometimes even leaders are culpable. Here Aaron condemns that he was innocent, that he, was, he merely threw the gold into the furnace, and to his surprise there came out a golden calf. Good leaders or good representatives of God are not necessarily people who make no mistakes, but they are those who own up to their mistakes and are willing to correct the course. In fact, we see the contrast in Moses. He intercedes for the people, and not only for the people, but also for his fellow leader. Uh, in Deuteronomy 9, verse 20, this is what we read. This is him, Moses, recounting this particular episode. Uh, Deuteronomy 9, 20. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Here is a godly leader, Moses, pleading for his fellow leader who did not do the right thing. And now in verse 7, God is breaking this news to Moses. Moses has absolutely no clue what was going on at the foot of the hill. Because Aaron was there and the rest of the people were at the foot of the hill. Moses himself were, had gone up to Mount Horeb to be with the Lord, uh, to receive the Ten Commandments. Um, so he had absolutely no clue what was going uh, down there in the valley. The Lord is going to break the news to him. What does he say? Uh, this is, uh, you know, the Lord said, uh, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrected themselves. If people thought that Moses would not know what was going on, they were mistaken. Because their God, the God of Israel, is an all-knowing and all-seeing 
God. As we read in Psalm 139, that there is no place for us to run away from God. Even if one goes to the ends of the earth, according to the psalmist, even to Sheol, the psalmist says God's presence will still be there. This is both comforting and scary at the same time, isn't it? It's comforting because God knows all our struggles, the spoken and the unspoken ones. He sees everything. At the same time, this thought also should uh, scare us because God sees everything I do. And he knows every thought of mine. Church, our God is an all-knowing, all-seeing God. He is present both in the highs and lows of our lives. It's important to acknowledge his presence at all times. As far as God is concerned, there is no privacy for any of his creation. He sees all of us as we are. In fact, uh, one of my friends would put it this way. God sees me naked when I'm in the shower. I thought that's imagination running wild, but the point uh, well taken. Our God sees us at every moment of our lives. Even when we are with ourselves, no one around us, absolutely in those private moments, God still sees us as we are. If you're struggling with something as a Christian, if you have unanswered prayers and you are wondering, where is God? If you're asking this question, where is God when it hurts? I want you to know that he is present right there with you. He is not far away. He is not absent. Walter Brookman puts it the best way. The silence of God does not mean his absence. This thought should comfort us. But if you are living in sin, uh, this should scare us. Because our God sees it as broad day. Everything, as it in broad daylight, he sees all of us. Our uh, secret sins, he sees. Also, our secret pains, the things that we can share with others, even the spouses, you know, things you think you can share with your spouse. This Lord knows. And the Lord says that these people have turned aside from him very quickly. And coming to verse 10, it's very interesting. God is now uh, quite upset with the people, and he's going to give a great offer to Moses. He says that I'm going to change the course of history. Verse 10, this is what we read. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may hot, burn hot against them, and I may consume them. In order that, what is the purpose that God would want to do that? In order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. What an offer. What an offer. Moses' response, let's read in verse 11 following. This is a great offer. What is God going to say that I'm going to replace you with, with the great names, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? This nation Israel will no longer be known as the nation or the children of these people. Instead, I'm going to uh, do a do-over with you. Going to start a new nation out of you. And you will be Moses. You will be known as the father of the nation. Very tempting offer indeed. And the offer is from God himself. So if Moses caved in, of course, you can't fault him, right? Because God gives him this offer. I'm going to do, I'm going to, uh, do this uh, with you. But look at what Moses tells God. 
But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, and now watch out his language in verse 7. God said, Moses, these are your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Look at his response to God. Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent uh, from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you soar by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on these people. I wonder how I would have responded to this. I would have said, Lord, here I am. Is the crown on my head yet? Right? But here is a man who is completely preoccupied by God's glory. That is what we see in Moses. Someone who is consumed by God's glory. He says, Lord, this story is not about me. This is not my story. It's your story. Your name, your fame is far more important than anything this feeble guy would achieve. This is not my story, God. It is your story. So do not do this. Because if you do this, what would the Egyptians say? What would the people say? They will laugh at you. They won't laugh at me. I'm just a man. They will laugh at you, the God of creation. We have told these people great and wondrous things about Yahweh. They have seen themselves what you have done. But they will say then that this God is a malicious God, malevolent as other Egyptian gods were. Because this is what those uh, prosperity gods would do uh, from the prosperity cult. Those gods, these people had to keep appeasing them in order to get what they wanted. Otherwise, uh, if they did not appease one of the deities, uh, it was uh, doom and gloom. And the God of Israel would not look any different. So Moses pleads with God and tells him that, Lord, it's all about you. It's your glory. It's not my story, Lord. It's your story. These are not my people, Lord. These are your people. A responsible leader, right? But as far as God is concerned, these are Moses' people because he is their leader. But as far as Moses, the man of God was concerned, these are not his people. These are God's people. Because God's name is associated with these people. And this is, uh, this is Moses' second nature. This is not just uh, the spur of the moment kind of a response from uh, Moses. No, this is his default nature. In fact, this is not the only time God would make this offer to Moses. If you uh, would turn to Numbers 14, 12, uh, this is what we will read uh, about uh, God's offer uh, there to Moses. Uh, you know, there he says uh, that, you know, I'm going to uh, make a new nation out of you. I'm going to destroy these people. His response is exactly the same. Lord, please don't do it because it's your story. As far as Moses was concerned, he had one man audience. God was his audience. He was performing for this one-man audience. Church, we are performing for this one-man audience. You and I as God's people, we are performing for God. 
at the end of the day it doesn't matter if all the people gave you a thumbs up after whatever you did if god were to give you a thumbs down moses knew that he was in it not for himself he was in it for god for his glory for his sake he was a man who was consumed by god's glory church let me ask this question what drives us what drives our ambitions what drives our desires are those to make a name for ourselves to become significant in in community in society to become uh important to our neighbors to be something among god's people what drives us this is a question i wrestle with because i'm often tempted folks i'm often tempted to photobomb jesus you know something i have learned uh, in my theological education uh, is this that you can have so much up here head knowledge although this this distance between head and heart is not too far but in real life they are light years light years away if i had practiced everything i have learned you should have put me in a glass case i shouldn't have come out of it i should have been a saint decorated that way but i i'm fallible you know very gullible giving into uh, all of these pressures in life but here is a man of god who was consumed by god's glory that's why in verse uh, verse 34 listen to his prayer he says the next day moses said to the people uh, you have sinned a great sin and i i will go up to the lord perhaps i can make atonement for your sins so moses returned to the lord and said alas these people have sinned a great sin they have made for themselves gods of gold but now if you will forgive their sin and in hebrew actually there is a silence here isn't even complete there is this long pause lord if you will not forgive their sin then you could almost envision his posture like really his head down and he says then brought my name out the hebrew phrase means kill me take my life out it does not mean like you know the book of life or the uh, that we read in the new testament he is saying my identity is fused with the identity of this people moses says i have no existence apart from this people your people god he does not find a significance or self worth in himself he finds his significance because he is part of this body which is god's people as christians our identity is fused with the identity of the church christ died for the church and by extension for each one of us because he intended us to be part of his body the church we have no existence apart from the church the body of christ so as christians we should not think only about ourselves but more so importantly about the community of god's people as moses does as we read in philippians Uh, chapter 2 verses 3 to 5 we've heard a couple of uh, thoughts from philippians today this is apparently the passage of the day 
in 3 to 5, there Paul presents Christ and says that, let not you think about yourselves only. Consider others more important uh, than yourself. And then he gives this carbon Christi, uh, the Christ song, uh, which we have read this morning. The Christ song is this, because he put you and me first. Though he was God, he became man, became a slave, became obedient even to the point of death. That is the way church, he put us first. And therefore, Paul tells the Philippians to put others likewise. If you consider others more important, look at the example of Christ. This is how to put others first. So Moses does that, doesn't he? He says, Lord, if you will not forgive these people, because God was ready to destroy these people and to start over with Moses, he says, Lord, if you do that, first of all, your name would be dishonored. The Egyptians and all of these other neighboring nations would uh, laugh at you. Your glory is more important. And then he says, Lord, my identity is not independent of these people. These are God's people. My identity is with them. Apart from them, I have zero existence. I have zero value. Because God is called not the, just the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here is a man consumed by God's glory. And then we read in verses uh, 15 through uh, 20, Moses comes down uh, the mountain. And in his anger, and Raven had read this verse for us in chapter 34, where God says, you know, I'm slow to anger. Of course, uh, Moses, uh, for obvious reasons, is pretty upset. He throws the tablets, the two tablets of stone, uh, on which the Ten Commandments were written and breaks into pieces. Maybe a symbolic gesture, a symbolic act, uh, broken tablets. Uh, says that these people have already broken the covenant. These are stiff-necked people. And God repeats that phrase a few times. Actually, in chapter 33, he says, okay, you guys go ahead. I will send an angel to go before you, but I myself will not dwell among you because if I were to dwell among you, God says, I will consume you because you guys are stiff-necked people. But thanks be to God in chapter 34, as Rebel reminded us, God says, I'm a God who is slow to anger. If God had not been gracious and not been forgiving, I'll tell you, I'd have been consumed so many times over. As a Christian, I would have been consumed so many times over. Thanks be to God. Praise be to his name. It is his grace that allows this forgiveness to flow through feebles like you and me. Folks, we are who we are, not because of anything that we have done, but purely because of his grace. And in the, the last section that we will see is verses uh, 25 through 29. Moses comes out and gives a solemn invitation to the people. And he says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And the Levites separate themselves. Then he says, you know, he says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 27, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and that day about 3,000 men of Israel fell and Moses said today 
as a result of what they had done. Today, you have been ordained or consecrated for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Uh, what an initiation into ministry, right? Initiation by blood. It's not just any blood, but by the blood of kith and kin on family members, because Aaron himself, Aaron should have been killed, but Moses tells us it's because Moses interceded on his behalf. But here Levites take up the sword, a very painful and difficult act. They nonetheless do it because they knew that this is exactly what God demanded. That day, they killed so many people. As a result, God says, you are now consecrated, set apart for the Lord's service. It was difficult for them to do that that day. But they made that difficult choice. As we conclude, the question I want to leave with us is this. Uh, is this. What consumes us? Is it God's glory or self-worth? Do we think too highly about ourselves? That every time we think it must be us, it must be my name, it must be me on the pulpit or wherever that is, it must be me, the center of attraction. Sometimes as God's uh, people and the servants of the Lord, people who have been called into leadership positions, sometimes we are tempted with that. We are not immune to it. But we can learn from Moses that he is a man consumed by God's glory. He finds God's people, uh, the people that he was ministering to was God's people, not his people. He was someone who was willing to intercede on behalf of his fellow brothers, fellow sisters. He knew he was performing for one audience that was God. Who do we perform for? 